Do you see people? Do you see people? Don't misunderstand me. What I mean is, do you notice people? Do you notice even those sitting right around you this morning? Their presence. Have you gotten their names? If you don't know them already. Of course, we all see people visibly. Many of us are blind to people emotionally, spiritually, relationally. I'm wondering if the people you interact with daily, the people in your home, your spouse, your kids, your roommates, people you work with, people you worship with, people you encounter at the grocery store, people you may encounter at the restaurant, the gym, or the airport, wherever you are, do you see the people who are around you? Do you see them? Or are they always in your way? Hindering your agenda. More of, a, more of a bother than anything. I think this is perhaps why we're all stuck behind our screen every time we're in public. When there are image bearers all around us. You've heard this quote, likely heard this quote from C.S. Lewis in his collection of sermons called The Weight of Glory. Listen to what Lewis says. He says, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. He says, you've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Do you see people? Do you see the immortal image bearers around you? Do you notice them? Today we're going to look at a text of scripture about the mistreatment of one of God's immortal image bearers, a young foreign woman named Hagar. We're going to find her story in Genesis 16. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 16. We'll meet Hagar again in several weeks. We're introduced to her here, Genesis 16. We're going to learn that her mistreatment is the result of Abram and Sarah's lack of faith. Abram and Sarah failed to believe the Word of God, and one of the results of their failure to believe the Word of God was the mistreatment of this slave girl, Hagar. Their unbelief leads them to do unbelievable things to an unbeliever. And isn't it also true of us that we will often look down on unbelievers while we struggle with our own unbelief? Genesis 16, 
we find the story of Hagar and Sarah. Interestingly, this chapter follows chapter 15, which has been called the great faith chapter. Chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It's the great faith statement, maybe of all the Old Testament. And then in the very next chapter, Abram and Sarah have this great lapse of faith. They've been in the, the land of Canaan for ten years, we'll learn, but they're growing impatient. God has promised them offspring. God has even promised them, not just offspring generically. He's even said in chapter 15, verse 4, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. They will have a biological son. But they're growing impatient. He takes those promises we saw last week and he enshrines them in a covenant sealed with blood. The end of 15. So God is super serious about what he's going to do with Abram and his progeny. So much so that he walked through as I said last week, he splattered through the path of blood, calling down a curse upon himself if he were to break this promise. God is going to keep this promise, but Sarah, Sarai and Abram are tired of waiting. Have you ever been tired of waiting? It's been ten years in the land of Canaan. So they're going to take matters into their own hands. This chapter, chapter 16, is a classic example of what we do, what we all do. We all try to do this. We try to bring about God's plan in our way. We abandon the way of faith for the way of human calculation. And our schemes only serve to make things worse. Our schemes often bring more misery, not more help. Our unbelief brings misery into our families, and it leads often to the mistreatment of those around us. That's what's going to happen here. Their unbelief leads to the mistreatment of a young lady from another land. But amazingly, and I love this chapter, I loved living in this chapter this week because there's so much here. We won't be able to get to all of it this morning unless you want me to preach for about 72 minutes. No? Okay. <laughs> but there's an amazing storyline in this scripture. In the middle of this misery, God comes with mercy. God enters into this tragedy with mercy. This is the main point, I think, of Genesis 16. And it will be the main point of this sermon. There's mercy in the midst of misery. Mercy in the midst of misery. We can break this chapter into two sections, 1 through 6 and 7 through 16. These two sections will correspond to my two points this morning. Verses 1 through 6, misery. Verses 7 through 16, mercy. 1 through 6, consequences of unbelief. Misery. 7 through 16, God's care for unbelievers. Mercy. Misery, then mercy. Number one, misery. Verses 1 through 6. If you have your copy of Scripture, look with me. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Verse 1 introduces the main characters of this story, Sarai and Hagar, and the main problem, Sarah's barrenness. She had borne him no children. We've known this since chapter 11, that Sarah had been unable to have children. Chapter 11, verse 30, Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Ten years has gone past, verse 3. They'd lived ten years in the land of Canaan, and she still doesn't have children. She's still barren. Now notice in verse 1 what narrator Moses is doing. Narrator Moses is making it clear at the outset of this story that Sarai is, look at what it says, Sarai is Abram's wife. Now Sarai, in case we had forgotten, Abram's wife had borne him no children. Then look what he does in chapter 16, verse 3. Now after Abram had lived ten years years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, as if we had forgotten what he just said in verse 1. And then at the end of verse 3, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Moses, narrator Moses, is making it emphatically clear that, that Abram already has a wife. And it's not Hagar. It's Sarai. God's intention from the beginning was to be monogamous marriage. Abram had a wife, so he shouldn't be taking another one, especially another foreign wife, as Moses will go on to talk about in Deuteronomy 7. But as this chapter continues, chapter 16, verse 2 through 6, Sarah's tired of waiting. She's tired of waiting. She's convinced that God won't fulfill His promises. She's, she's convinced this baby, this baby boy is not going to come. So she takes faith, or excuse me, she takes matters into her own hands. Notice what she says there in chapter 16, verse 2. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now she's not wrong about that theologically. It is the Lord who opens or closes a, a womb. But she's not teaching theology here. This is blaming God. This is not a statement of fact, but a a complaint, a grumbling, a blame, blame game. She's convinced this baby's not coming. She says, God, it's your fault. She's thinking, God, if you made this promise, then why are you the one preventing its fulfillment? So she's going to develop an alternative plan. She says, hey, Hagar, I want you to come to my husband. She wants Abram to go into her. Now, before we see what happens, I want you to see some connections here. In these verses, there are several connections back to Genesis 3. Do you remember Genesis 3? When sin comes into the world? Notice some of these verbal connections that Moses does 
for us on purpose. Verse 2, and Sarai said to Abram, sounds like chapter 3, verse 2, the woman said to the man. Or chapter 2, the end of, excuse me, the end of verse 2 here. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. What does that sound like? Chapter 3, verse 17. Eve listened to the voice of his wife. Exact same word and word order. Verse 3, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. What does that remind you of? Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. So narrator Moses is intentionally shaping this passage to remind us of humanity's fall into sin from Genesis 3. Sarah and Abram are reenacting the events of the garden. Here, just like there, there's a role reversal that happens that creates all these problems. Instead of Sarai humbly following and deferring to the leadership of her husband, she takes the initiative. She leads Abram. She tells him what to do. In fact, she tells him what he ought not to do. What she tells him is what he ought not to do. But she tells him to do it anyways. And Abram is guilty of a complete failure of leadership. The end of verse 2 couldn't make it more clear. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. The way I hear that is that there wasn't even really much of, this, of, of a discussion. <laughs> Hera, uh, Sarah has this plan. Abram's like, all right. Sounds good. Bring her to me. Complete failure of leadership from this man. This father of our faith, <laughs> Right? He should have said, no, Sarah, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to keep trusting the promises of God. You know what? Let's build an altar to the Lord. Let's call upon the name of the Lord. Let's continue to ask the Lord to open your womb. We're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it this way. But instead, he just listens to the voice of his wife. He defers to her and does what she says. Now, obviously, in marriage... Husbands should listen to the voice of their wife. Don't misunderstand this text. I run almost every single major thing in my life past my wife because she is way smarter than me. Amen? That's not the point. A healthy marriage has open lines of communication back and forth with ideas and deference going both ways. But that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is that a wife suggested to her husband that he do something evil instead of trust the Lord. And he said, okay. He was not leading his wife spiritually. Their marriage, like so many, suffered because roles were reversed. And the fallout, as we'll see, was devastating. Abram takes Hagar as a second wife, sleeps with her, she conceives Verse 4, he went into Hagar, she conceived. And then look what, look what happens. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, on Sarai. So when she realizes she's pregnant, she starts to rub it in Sarai's face. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but at least we know that after Hagar conceives, she becomes conceited. Sarah's intention 
was that Hagar would give her and Abram a son. Basically, she wanted her to be a surrogate mom for them. Just make us a son, give him to us so we can have this heir, this offspring, this son. But what she didn't anticipate was that this plan would create all kinds of tension between her and Hagar, especially in a culture that equated childbearing with status and honor. It seems like Abram should have anticipated what would have happened. Any thinking man should have anticipated what would happen if he goes into this other woman and she conceives when his wife, his first wife, is not conceiving. Complete failure of leadership on his part. Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. He just does it without thinking through all the ramifications of what he's doing. There's another allusion here to a previous section of Genesis, verse 4, when it says, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. That word for contempt is the same word for dishonor in Genesis 12.3. So Genesis 12.3 is part of the Abrahamic blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. That word dishonor is the same word for contempt here. Part of the Abrahamic blessing was that God would curse those who dishonor Abram. So Abram and Sarai are one flesh. So when Hagar dishonors Sarai, Moses the narrator, I think, is signaling that she's aligning herself with the cursed line of the serpent. With, with those who oppose God's work in the world. Moses is aligning Hagar with anyone who opposes Abram and Abram's family. She's not in the blessing, under the blessing of Abram's family in a sense. We're going to find out here in a few moments that she, she is blessed in another sense. But salvifically, spiritually, it sure appears to me that she's outside of the Abrahamic blessing, outside of the spiritual line of the woman through whom God will bless and save the world. Sarah responds in verse 5. She said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt or dishonor. May the Lord judge between you and me. She's taking this to God's courtroom. She's furious. She's full of anger and rage. But here's the, here's the ironic thing. Maybe you already picture this. Whose idea was this? Whose idea was this? Sarai's. And she goes to her husband. She's like, I'm mad about what I've done. She more or less calls down a curse on Abram. Blames him for what would have been a fairly predictable outcome, even though she initiated the whole thing. The scene from the Garden of Eden continues to repeat itself, by the way. The guilty parties don't want to admit their guilt. Sarai is looking at Abram and saying, do something, instead of coming humbly before her and her God, asking for forgiveness with repentance. There's no admission of guilt here, but don't we do this? Aren't we just like Sarai? Aren't we super quick to defend our actions and make other people feel bad for the stupid things we do? That's wicked stuff, guys. And I do it all the time. I'm just being honest. Like, we all do this. Not only do we not own what we've done, but we flip it around and we make the person 
usually someone very close to us, we make them feel bad for what we've done. May it not be so. Abram responds in verse 6 by placing Hagar back under Sarai's authority. When Sarai gave her to Abram, she was transferring her as her slave, her servant, her maid to Abram. She was giving what you might call her property to Abram as now his wife. But Verse 6, Abram is transferring her back. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Notice something super important in this verse. Look at it again. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. He doesn't even use her name. He doesn't even use her name. This woman he just slept with and impregnated. It made his wife furious. He, he says, yeah, take her back. You can have her back. I don't want her anymore. Fine, whatever you want. He just uses her label. Take your servant. You can have your servant. He depersonalizes her. Depersonalizing those we harm is our way of trying to escape the truth that we've harmed them. Turning people into objects instead of image bearers is our attempt to make our sin more palatable. In what ways are you depersonalizing people? In what ways are you talking in generic abstract terms and not naming things that are true. Abram's heart towards this young foreign girl couldn't have been colder. Do to her as you please, Sarai. Do what you want with her. I don't care. Do what you want. Remember, this is the guy from 15.6. Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Do to her as you please. This is exactly what Sarah did. Look at the end of verse 6. She dealt harshly. Sarah dealt harshly with her. She fled from her. She dealt harshly with her. That's the same language that's used over in Exodus to describe the way Egypt oppressed Israel. Interesting here, it's Israel oppressing Egypt. This is a counter type, if you will. She dealt harshly with her. Sarai's mask falls down and reveals the hatred that was behind all her talk of justice. Talking about justice is not difficult. Actually loving the people who are being hurt around you and in this world is far more difficult. She despised Hagar. So Hagar received the full force of her rage. The language here, again, is the kind of language that was used of the Egyptians' oppression of the slaves, the Israelite slaves in Egypt. It was so bad that Hagar felt her only good option was to run away. A young pregnant girl. So she fled from her. It's bad, guys. It's really bad if your best option is to run away when you're alone and pregnant. Sarai was acting wickedly. 
towards this young girl. The scene ends in total disaster for all involved. Hagar loses her home. Sarai loses her servant and her integrity. Abram loses his second wife, his first child, and he loses his honor. This triangle of trouble was all the result of Abram and Sarai's failure to trust the word of God. So let's zoom out for a moment, consider what's really happening here. Abram and Sarai had abandoned the way of faith. They'd chosen the way of human calculation. And that created a chain of events of cause and effect that spiraled out of control, leaving everyone hurt in the process. Abram and Sarai sought to live outside God-given marital boundaries, which led to familial trouble for generations. Faith, their faith, which they had. We know Abram had faith. Their faith should have taken them another way. So we're wondering, how could they do this? Are you wondering that right now? Why on earth are they doing this? What is going on with them? Why would they do this? Well, the the answer is ready at hand for us. The, The answer is, they did what anyone in their culture would have done. Meaning that if you didn't have uh, an heir from your wife in the ancient Near East, you would just take a second wife or a third if possible, if necessary. They were embracing a culturally acceptable convention to bring about the promises of God. They turned to the flesh instead of to faith to accomplish the plan of God. Dr. Jim Hamilton says, this begs a question for us. I think this is a pertinent question for us in all ages. In what ways has our culture made unbelief and action in the flesh seem natural to us? In what ways has our culture made unbelief and action in the flesh seem like the only good option? We could apply this all over the place. Let's think about in the church, for example. Maybe in church, we think we should hire a better pastor who's funnier or more charismatic or more gifted or more whatever. We should create more programs. We should do more of this or that or the other instead of trusting in the power of the Word of God. So in church, we might be tempted to trust in personalities or programs. In our evangelism, we might be trusted to, uh, tempted to trust in human methods rather than in the simple act of recommending Jesus Christ to someone else and praying that God, by His Holy Spirit, would light the flame of regeneration in their heart. Maybe in our financial provision, We seek to come up with all kinds of ways to make money that don't involve hard work, persistence, frugality, saving, etc. In what ways has our culture made unbelief and action in the flesh seem natural to us? In what ways are we embracing culturally accepted conventions to bring about God's plan in our life? In Abram's culture, it was obvious that the thing 
to do was to take a second wife. But we look at this and we're like, what are you doing? Abram, this is ridiculous. This is what we would call a blind spot. Abram and Sarah didn't think carefully about what they were doing. Now, brothers and sisters, unfortunately, future generations are going to look at us and our blind spots will be very obvious to them. Amen? The trouble with blind spots, of course, is that you can't see them. So it would be good for us to come to this text with humility, to respond to a text like this with humility. Because our children and our grandchildren, our friends, they'll see our blind spots with the same kind of clarity that we see Abram's blind spots. So we come to this, and we don't come with an accusatory tone. We don't, we don't come with self-righteousness. We come remembering that we would have done exactly what Sarah and Abram did. We're no better than them. Are we? Remember who they are. They're recently converted pagans, living and thinking, scheming, like recently converted pagans. Not too long ago, they were worshiping idols. They were relatively new Christians, if you will. We're still trying to, they didn't even have the written word of God. They were still trying to figure this stuff out. And they're acting like it. Shouldn't this give us some humility with the way we minister to those around us, especially newer believers? Maybe unbelievers, maybe believers who are struggling and immature in some areas. Shouldn't this give us a measure of grace and compassion for them? Thankfully, this is not where Abram and Sarah's story ends. You might remember 1 Peter 3. Peter calls Abram, excuse me, Sarai, Sarah, a model of faith and godliness. So her story doesn't end here. Neither does Abram's. They're held up in the New Testament as models of faithfulness and godliness. But their failure here to trust the promises of God brings conflict into their lives, brings harm to those around them, brings misery, not happiness. Their scheming does not fix their problem. It actually makes their problem worse. As later chapters will show us. So into this misery will there be anything good that comes? Is anything good going to come out of this mess? Well, yes, there is. Um, 7 through 16 tell us that mercy comes. Mercy comes into this misery. So number two, mercy. Chapter 16, verse 7. Look at it with me. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her. That's Hagar. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, 
his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Laha Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Abram and Sarai failed Hagar, and the Lord finds her. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. It says that she's on the way to Shur. Shur is a desert. It's, it's got a road going through it that connects Canaan to Egypt. She's on this road, on the way, on the road to Shur. She's going through the wilderness or the desert of Shur which tells us that she's returning to Egypt. She's returning home. She's going back to her homeland. Hagar is going back to her people, perhaps even back to her gods. We don't know if she ever becomes a true believer in Yahweh and part of the covenant people of God. It seems likely not. Here she's going back to Egypt. Unlike Ruth, she's not going to stick around with her Israelite, if you will, friends and family. She's running back home. And can we really blame her? Can we blame her for what she's doing? If we'd been treated the way she was, we'd probably want to go back home too. But on her way home, something remarkable happens to this likely unbelieving Egyptian. The angel of the Lord found her. Man, I wish I could preach on this one phrase all morning. The angel of the Lord found her. Angel of the Lord, quickly, angel of the Lord, uh, who is this person? Well, in verse 13, she's identified with the Lord. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, your God of seeing. And in verses 10 through 12, this angel of the Lord is speaking like the Lord, like someone who can make promises and predictions and bless and multiply offspring. So this angel of the Lord is identified with the Lord, with God. There's debate among scholars about this, but it sure appears that the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of the presence of the Lord Himself. God coming to someone in human form. I don't want to steal Jared's thunder, because in chapter 18, in a few weeks, we're going to see this even more so. But arguments can be made that this angel of the Lord is perhaps the second person of the Trinity, the pre incarnate Christ. Many of the church fathers understood the angel of the Lord to be the Son of God because He always comes in Scripture as a mediator between God and needy people. The angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her. So, we may not know exactly who this angel of the Lord is, but what we know for sure in this text is that God cares for Hagar when no one else did. God went to her. Abram and Sarah had just written her off. They were fine with just letting it well alone. They were done. Who wasn't done? God. God wasn't done with Hagar. 
Notice what he does in verse 8. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? He calls her by her name. Unlike Abram, who just uses labels, he calls her by her name. He knows who she is. Which, by the way, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to use people's names whenever you can. Learn people's names. Your waiter and waitress has a name. The person checking you out at Target has a name. They even have a name badge on. It'll bless their socks off when you say, Thank you, Robert. Lord bless you. Pick your name, I don't know. Use people's names, brothers and sisters. It's a small but profound way of acknowledging someone's humanity. That they're not an object to just kind of serve you. That they're an immortal, image-bearer person. Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? Hagar's young. She's pregnant. She's alone in the wilderness. If you know anything about the geography between the land of Canaan and Egypt, there ain't nothing there. But rocks and sand and sun. Now she is by a spring, and it's unclear exactly where the spring is. She may have stopped there because, and, and stayed there because she couldn't go on any further. Yet another evidence of the Lord's kindness to her that He's providing for her in the wilderness. But there she is. She's all alone. She's all alone in the wilderness. The wilderness in the Bible is the geography of trauma and death. Think about every time you, you see wilderness pop up in the Old or New Testament. Usually good things aren't happening in the wilderness. wilderness. It's, it's where people die. It's where people are tempted. It's where people struggle. It's where people rebel. It's where, it's where dark things happen. Traumatic things happen. This is where Hagar is. She's alone and she's in the wilderness. Friends, do you ever feel like Hagar in this moment? Do you ever feel like you're alone in the wilderness? Maybe a parent has deserted you. Maybe a spouse has deserted you. Friends turned against you. Maybe you've simply come to a new city and you're starting a new job, but you have no new network of friends or relationships. You feel very alone. Maybe your house or apartment is full of people, but you can't shake this feeling of always being alone. Your heart is full of grief that no one seems to notice. You have a story of harm and pain, yet no one seems interested in hearing or understanding. You have a marriage that's existing but not thriving. You have children that are bringing you to the end of yourself. You... Out of the mouth of babes. I love you, my son. You're so precious to me. My boy. Maybe you have a walk with God that seems driven by duty instead of delight. You're reading, you're praying, you're reading, you're praying, and you can't seem to feel the presence of God. I would suggest, brothers and sisters, that it's here, it's right here where the Lord intends to meet you, where He wants to find you. 
you're wondering if anyone sees, if anyone cares. No one really asks you how you're doing. Or if they do, they, like you can tell they don't really want to know how you're doing. They're just kind of striking up conversation. No one seems to actually want to understand how you got to where you are, where you're headed, and what's going on. Hagar, where have you come from? And where are you going? You're longing for that kind of conversation, and no one's having it with you. And here, right here, God comes. He comes with questions. He doesn't come with accusations. Does this remind you of the Garden of Eden too? Adam and Eve sin. They flee. They hide. They're in shame. God comes to them with questions. Not with shaming. Not with condemnation and accusations. Of course, there will be and are consequences. But He comes with care and concern for His image bearers. Friends, He comes to engage us, to save us, to love us, not just to fix us. That's what you want, I think. A lot of you just want to be fixed. Notice that's not what's happening here. The angel of the Lord found her. Where have you come from? Where are you going? He didn't come with an action plan. He didn't come with rules and regulations and encouragements to do this, that, or the other. He comes to have a conversation with one of His image bearers. He comes showing curiosity. He comes with questions. Not because He doesn't know the answers. Do you think God really needs this information? So what's happening then? Why would God come with questions? This is super instructive for us, friends. Why would God come to you with questions? He already knows everything. So why? Because He wants you to enter into the beauty and the pain of your story. He wants you to stop pretending. Pretending is not the way, brothers and sisters. Stop it. (laughs) Pretending like you're all fine is not okay. Because it's never never actually going to work. It's never going to fix anything. Ever. Ever. So the Lord comes with kindness, with your name on His lips. Where have you come from? Where are you going? He wants us to study our lives. I know a lot of us in our church, we love studying. We'll study anything in the world but our pain. And then wonder why it never goes away. When all we do is ignore, 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 work, 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 play, 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 without ever stopping to sit with the Lord and let Him deal with us. And our hearts, let our hearts open before Him. Hagar, where are you coming from? Where are you going? I know many of you are giving even today, the impression that you're okay, but you're not okay. And that's okay, because neither am I. None of us are. Church can be a dangerous place because we come here and we all kind of look like we're doing great. But that's just not reality, okay? It's just not. It's just not. Our hearts are aching, afraid, angry. We have no idea why why we get so angry about the smallest things. And it's right here, brothers and sisters, it's right here where the Lord finds us, sees us, hears us, comes, wants to heal us, 
what should you do? Well, what I think you need to do is go to the Lord. Go to trusted friends. Go to a counselor. Go to your journal. Repeat. Go to the Lord. Go to brothers and sisters. Go to a counselor. Go to your journal. Go to the Lord. Go to your friends. Go to your journal. Go to your, like, get the help you need. Sitting there pretending like you're okay, hoping that if you just kind of keep going through the motions and things will eventually fix themselves in the hurricane that is the inner life, your inner life is not going to work. It's not going to work. Hagar, where are you coming from? Where are you going? If Hagar's story teaches us anything, it teaches us that the Lord loves to bring His mercy to bear on our misery. How many times in the Scriptures does the Lord come to broken people? Here, God is turning His attention to an outsider. She's not even part of Abraham's family. She's been pushed out by the insiders. This text is showing us that God cares for those outside of the elect line of His promise. In other words, that God loves and cares for unbelievers. God doesn't see unbelievers merely as kindling for the fires of hell. And we shouldn't either. They're made in His image and He cares for them. And He might just want to save them and we have the message that will save them. It's so ironic to me that in our struggles and unbelief, we will withhold the best news in the world from unbelievers and look down our noses at them as if we are somehow superior to them. Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? Now, unlike Adam or later Cain in Genesis 4, Hagar doesn't dodge the questions the Lord asks. Hagar tells the truth in verse 8. She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. She doesn't dodge what's really happening. She's not entirely innocent. She was the one despising or looking with contempt upon Sarai. But she's where she is now because of the harmful actions of others. She's honest about her situation. She's not playing games. She's humble enough to tell the Lord how she got where she got. Verse 9, the Lord tells her to do something pretty crazy if you think about it. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. What? Return to her? Why on earth would the Lord want Hagar to go back to that situation? The only thing I can, uh, can come up with is, in mercy, because I think we're just seeing tons of mercy here, in mercy, God literally wants to save her life. He knows she's alone and pregnant in the wilderness, and if she stays there, she's going to die. So she needs to go back home. And if she goes back home, there's a potential of being in the family of Abraham, the blessed family of Abraham. So the Lord's coming with what on the surface seems to be a pretty ridiculous plan, but I think in this plan is mercy to save her life and potentially bless her life. 
Verse 10, there's this renewed hope of blessing. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. What does that sound like? That sounds like what the, what the Lord told Abram. Here he's telling uh, Hagar that. Now there's no promise of land. There's no promise of worldwide blessing. So they're not exactly the same. But the Lord does bless her with this promise of multiple offspring. A multitude even. This promise though comes with this ominous prediction in verses 11 through 12. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. I love that. The Lord has listened to your affliction. That's, by the way, why we read Exodus 2 earlier at the beginning of the service. When uh, Israel was in slavery, they're groaning, and it says that the Lord saw and the Lord heard. That's what's happening here. Again, the Lord listens. He sees and he listens to Hagar's affliction. But then he says something quite ominous about this boy she's going to have. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Verse 12, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So, she finds out that her son is going to be like a wild donkey. He'll be wild and free. So he's not name-calling here. He's using a word picture. He's not calling him that word you're all thinking right now. He's saying that this son of yours is going to live like a donkey. He's going to be wild and free. He's not going to be, it says there, he'll dwell over against or beside all his kinsmen. What this comes to mean is he's going to be a nomadic herder. He's not going to live in the cities. He's going to be on the outside looking in for his entire life. Especially looking in on his brothers. There'll be animosity between him and everyone else. Animosity between his brothers. The freedom that his mother sought will be his one day, but it'll be a freedom marked by constant conflict with Israel. A conflict that comes down even to this day as the Ishmaelites are the, most would argue, the modern day Arabs, the Arab people. After receiving this message from the angel of the Lord, Hagar responds in verses 13 through 14. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. She realizes that the Lord has seen her in her affliction, a seeing that resulted in looking after Looking at, I have seen him who looks after me. Isn't that tender language? If you've had children, especially young children, what do you do? You look after them constantly. You're like, I know, John. <laughs> like, that's why I'm dying over here. But the tenderness of that picture, this looking after, you know what they need, you know where they are, you see them, you see their needs. You're entering into their space to meet those needs. You're helping them along. You're looking after them. That's exactly what the Lord does with her. And then she confesses that. I've seen him who looks after me. This is so beautiful. She realizes the Lord has seen her in her affliction. 
God, of course, sees everything, but this kind of seeing means that He notices what's going on and steps in to do something about it. In the moment of her greatest distress, Hagar discovers that God is concerned for her. He sees her, moves toward her with protection and blessing and promises and commands. This text, again, is one of countless examples in the Bible of God moving toward the outsider, God moving toward the downtrodden. We will typically, be honest, friends, we will typically move away from the outsider and the downtrodden. God is doing the exact opposite. How can we be more like Him? Well, let me give you one tangible way. Here in the local church, um, one of the ways we can be this and do this One of the ways we can let each other know that God sees us is when we see each other. When we meet, when we when we move toward our brothers and sisters, instead of waiting around for them to come to us, we move toward them with care and concern, with curiosity and questions, wondering what's going on in their lives. We get beyond shooting the bull. And look, I can shoot the bull with you all day. I'm a professional bull shooter. Okay. Sorry, that doesn't make sense probably, but anyways, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about entering into someone's story, their life, their struggles, their hopes, their dreams, their marriages, parenting, their their work, everything, their personal life, entering into that space, getting beyond vague and lame generalities that we all tend to just live there. We can enter into these spaces if we have the courage to do so and show each other that God sees us, show one another that we're not alone, that we're not forgotten. You see, in the church, we're called the body of Christ. So that means that we can meet, uh, mediate the caring presence of Jesus into the lives of other people. Did you know that? You can be the presence of Jesus in the lives of other people. So, Brothers and sisters, who can you minister to this week? Who can you minister to this week? Think of a name or two. Who can you call or text or have coffee with? Who can you minister God's mercy to? How can you minister God's mercy to someone in misery this week? How can you be the presence of Christ in the life of someone else? This is one of the chief ways that we are reminded that God sees us. Haven't you experienced this when someone really wants to know how you're doing? You usually walk away from that conversation feeling what? Super encouraged, right? Because you realize, not because, you may not remember anything you talked about, but you realize, hey man, that person, like, they genuinely cared for me. The conversation wasn't about them, but they were caring for me. And you leave encouraged and cared for. We can do this. We should do this weekly in the church. I have seen Him who looks after me. We can see Him too. We can see Him in the faces of our brothers and sisters. Now, unfortunately, this chapter ends with nothing resolved. Sarah's scheme only brings conflict. Hagar has her son. Abram names him Ishmael, verses 15 and 16. Hagar suffered and then was vindicated with this son. Not Sarai, Sarah's plan backfires despite all her authority and all her scheming and all her planning. Her her plan backfires. 
And as I said, this, is the age, this whole story is the age-old story of people trying to bring about God's plan in their way. The way of faith is abandoned for the way of human calculation. Their hasty action springing from unbelief doesn't accomplish God's plan and instead leads to conflict and pain. But despite the unbelief and misery their sin creates, mercy comes too. There's mercy in their misery. And so it is in our lives. In Jesus Christ, God has come to us. He is the true and greater angel of the Lord, if you will. The true and final mediator between God and men. And in Him we can find mercy in our misery. He died on the cross for our unbelief, for our scheming, our plotting, all the ways we calculate and plan to do things in the flesh instead of by faith. He dies on the cross for all of those things, for all of the ways we've harmed people, even as we've tried to, in our haste, do things our way. He, he comes to forgive us of all the harm we've created in our scheming and plotting. He gives us His steadfast love, the kind of steady love that sets us free and compels us to see people around us the way He sees them, to take His mercy into their misery. As Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Friends, all the mere mortals you know are carrying around bags of misery. And I wonder if you see them. Do you see them? Do you notice them? They need God's mercy and you can be the one who takes it to them. But you have to see them first. The angel of the Lord found her. He said, Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? Has the angel of the Lord found you? Has he entered into your life, your pain, your misery? How have you responded? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your word and accomplish your purposes. We are a needy people. There is a lot of misery in this room. Most of it, I, I would guess, is unspoken and unknown. Most of us suffer quietly, alone. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the presence of Christ in each other's lives. Help us to see one another, to notice one another, to move towards one another, and care for one another just as you've cared for us. Father, help us in our misery not to be so stuck on ourselves and so introspective and so consumed with our story that we fail to see those around us. Lord, we need to do both. We need to sit with you on the road to shore. We need to sit and listen and engage with you. And we need to engage those around us. Please give us eyes to see people the way you see people. Please give us your mercy and our misery. And please give us a heart to take that mercy to those around us. We ask in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.